Thank you, Ben, and thank you for being here today. We're grateful for this opportunity that we have to be together, whether it is as an assembly together or whether or not we are coming into your home through live streaming. We're grateful for the opportunity to be together. We're going to be looking, as was read a moment ago by Ben, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, and as was noted a moment ago, we will be having a, v, a virtual VBS, and I'm not sure exactly all that is entailed in that program, but I think it's going to be a great program for our young people, and I want to encourage those of you that are parents to make sure you sign your children up. I know that they would benefit greatly from that. Uh, Brother Dio asked me to remind everyone about the mask before I began preaching today just to remind people of trying to be safe and protect ourselves, protect one another from the virus. And uh, I wish that what we're dealing with right now was not a reality. And quite frankly, I despise the devil for this terrible virus because when it's all said and done, he's the cause of it. Just like he's the cause of every other malady that we face on planet earth. If you want to blame somebody, blame him. And I look forward to the day when he has his, his day of judgment, day of reckoning in that lake prepared for him called the fire, well, a lake of fire and brimstone. We're going to be looking at Luke 5 in just a minute. Luke chapter 5, let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be together today. We thank you for your great love, your mercy, your grace. We are so grateful for the opportunity to be together today. We pray for our elders. Bless these men. Bless their families. Bless every family member here. We pray for those who are sick and struggling, those who are in the hospital. We pray for the Dawkins family and their loss. Father, we pray for all who need our prayers. And we're so grateful for the privilege and the power of prayer, the opportunity to come before your throne to make our wants and wishes known. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we study your word this hour. Help us to take what we read from your holy word and make application in our own lives. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. In Luke chapter 5, we have an interesting account of a man by the name of Matthew. We know him as Matthew Levi. And in the context, we have Jesus calling him to become one of his disciples. Interestingly, this same account is found in Matthew chapter 9, in Mark chapter 2, and of course in Luke chapter 5. Three narratives of the Lord's call regarding Matthew Levi. And Jesus identifies himself in this text as the great physician. And really it's a beautiful text because it lends insight into the power of the great physician. And really it sums up his work on planet earth. So what I want us to do is to begin our study today by noting together the call of the publican. And look, if you would, at verse 27. After these things, he went out, that is Jesus, and the text says, and saw a tax collector 
named Levi, sitting at the tax office. Let me just pause here. First, I want to talk a little bit about the occupation of Matthew Levi. He is identified as a tax collector. Some translations render him as a publican, and this term is used quite frequently in the New Testament. Tax collectors were farmed out by the Roman government, and they used these men, in this case they used a Jewish man by the name of Matthew Levi to perform this work or this service. Typically speaking, when we talk about the occupation of those who functioned in this capacity, their reputation was far from stellar. And so not only do we read something about his occupation, but his reputation. And let me just give you some insight into the reputation of Matthew as well as those who functioned in this capacity. In verse 29, and of course, we find that Matthew has a great feast and included in this feast in his own home is Jesus. But in verse 29, the text tells us a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. The scribes and the Pharisees, however, they murmured, they grumbled against his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors, and listen to what he says, and sinners. Tax collectors were viewed by the Jews in the first century as sinners. Matter of fact, A.T. Robertson, in his word pictures of the New Testament, and by the way, his work is free online. You can go to, you can go to Classic Study Light, and you can read of his work. He describes those who were assembled in Matthew's house as a motley crew of people. The term others, as used by Luke in this narrative, describes others like Matthew. So what's Luke saying? Well, he's saying, as we sometimes say, birds of a feather flock together, don't they? They did not have a good reputation. They were looked down upon by people in the first century, particularly the Jews. They viewed them like they would a Gentile. And so the character of Matthew would have come with, as we would say, many flaws. So, first and foremost, his character. And his character, as I said a moment ago, was not one that we would deem noteworthy by any stretch of the imagination. He's identified, along with others in his occupation, as a sinner. And Matthew hosts a great feast. And assembled at his household are a lot of folks just like him. And so, as I said a moment ago, birds of a feather flock together, don't they? So, in light of that, note if you would what Jesus says. First, his character, and then secondly, his calling. Jesus said to this man, follow me. And look at verse 28. Luke said, and he left all, rose up, 
and followed him. Jesus came to planet earth to call people to become his disciples, didn't he? And when you think about, here is Jesus reaching out, touching, as we would say sometimes, the untouchable. I mean, this guy is on the lower plane, morally speaking, in the eyes of many people. And Jesus is calling him to become one of his intimate disciples. He will become an apostle, won't he? And he will write for the Jewish mindset, and he will present to his readers in the first century and to those of us of later generations, he will be the one who presents Jesus as the king. He identifies his kingly genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. But he is King Jesus as we know him. And so Jesus instructs him to follow him. Is Jesus interested in people following him today? Sure he is. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 11, Come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden? The appeal of Jesus is far and wide. He's interested in all people. The gospel, as we say sometimes, is for all. So the Lord Jesus, He's interested in all people. But note, not only did Jesus encourage Him to follow Him, but there is the encouragement to forsake all to follow Him. The text says He left all and followed Him. In leaving all, He left any and everything that would have been an obstacle to His service in following the Lord. Do you remember Jesus saying in Matthew 16, verse 24, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Sometimes the most difficult person who stands in our way to serving the Lord is me, myself, and I. We get in the way, don't we? I mean, how often do we want our way instead of the Lord's way? We want our will instead of the Lord's will. And yet Jesus said, you want to be one of my disciples? Jesus would say in Luke 14, Whoever it be among you that does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus, in a very transparent way, is saying, there are some people, they are not up to being a disciple of mine. You know why? They're not willing to forsake all. They're not willing to follow me. Look, it's not about half-hearted devotion and service. It's not about fringe service in the kingdom of God. It's about either being all in or all out. There is no middle ground, is there? You're either in or you're out. So I think about the call of the publican. But now, secondly, what about the criticism by the Pharisees? Now Luke says that Matthew Levi has called a great feast. And he has apparently invited a lot of folks. And the text tells us, in verse 29, there were a great number of tax collectors and others. There were a lot of folks just like Matthew, sinners. 
a motley crew of people assembled together on this occasion. Now, you need to know something about the character of the Pharisees. I would submit to you first and foremost, they were arrogant. They were arrogant. They looked down their noses at other people, didn't they? As a matter of fact, in looking at a number of scriptures, we, we find something out about how they thought and how they acted. You remember in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said in a series of denunciations directed at the scribes and the Pharisees, He said, all their works they do to be seen by men. They were interested in putting on a dog and pony show. They wanted people to look at them and think about how pious and godly and righteous they were. That's what they were all about. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, in about verse 28, He said, outwardly they appear righteous before men, but inwardly they're full of all uncleanness. Now, when you look at their attitude toward others, in Luke 15, you remember in that series of parables given by Jesus, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. The text tells us that they chided the Lord. Why? Because He was receptive of those they deemed as sinners. In Luke 18, we have the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. And Jesus taught this parable because and directed it at those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And listen to, what, listen to what Luke said. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. They looked down their nose at publicans and sinners, didn't they? You know, Luke says in chapter 16 that they were lovers of money and they literally turned their nose up at other people. So we're talking about an arrogant, rogue group of people that thought of themselves as being the righteous. Jesus said that the Pharisee stood and prayed within himself. And he said, I thank you, God, that I'm not as other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. He said, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But the publican, standing afar off, would not so much as lift his head toward heaven. The text says he beat his breast or smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
So what's the point? When we talk about the Pharisees and their arrogance, they didn't think they needed the Lord. As a matter of fact, if you want to know something about them, their attitude would have been, Lord, you're just lucky to have me in your service. I mean, you're blessed to have me. I'm so righteous, so upstanding, so morally clean. I mean, look, you're blessed to have me in your service, God. They were arrogant. And not just arrogant, but they were adversarial. They were enemies of Jesus Christ, by and large. Not all the Pharisees were like that. A good example of that would be Nicodemus. But these guys, they didn't like the Lord. They didn't believe in Him. In Matthew chapter 19, you remember the text tells us in about verse 3, the Pharisees came testing Jesus, tempting Him. Really what they wanted to do was ensnare Him in His speech. So they asked a question. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? What they really thought was they would pin him into a corner. And Jesus went all the way back to the very beginning and talked about God's original intent for marriage. One man, one woman for life. So they raise a question. Well, why then did Moses give a command of divorcement to put her away? Jesus said, Moses, because of, of the hardness of your heart, allowed you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So they tried to ensnare him. In Matthew chapter 22, the text tells us that they counseled among themselves how they might entangle Jesus in his talk, they weren't interested in truth. Read John chapter 9. When Jesus gave sight to a man that had been born blind, you'll read something about the character of the Pharisees. So they were adversarial. They were antagonistic to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. But think for a moment or two about the criticism that they level against the disciples of Jesus and really, in essence, against the Lord Himself. Look, if you would, in verse 30. The text tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees, this Large feast is going on in the home of Matthew. And this murmur begins to ripple among the crowds. This grumbling, as Luke said. And they want to know from the disciples of Jesus, why would your master, why would he stoop to eating and drinking with such a group of low-life, worthless, sinful people. That's really what they wanted to know. I mean, if you are, if you're who you claim to be, and you're all about, I mean, why would you want to go into a den like that? 
Interesting question, isn't it? So they were critical of the choices of Jesus. And not just the choices of Jesus, but they were critical of the company of Jesus. I mean, Lord, why would you keep company with a ragtag band of people like that? Why in the world would you associate with such sinful, profligate people? Well, look at, look at the ministry of Jesus. Is it not the case that Jesus oftentimes reached out and touched the untouchable? I mean, do we not see that over and over again in the gospel narratives? In John chapter 4, when Jesus stood at Jacob's well, and He asked that woman for a drink of water, who, by the way, was a Samaritan. The Samaritans were what we would call half-breeds. When the Jews were carried into Assyrian captivity in about 722-721 B.C., those Jews intermingled with the Assyrian people. And so the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. John said, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And then in John chapter 4, Jesus not only spends time with a person who is a Samaritan, but a woman. His own disciples could not believe that He was talking to a woman. The plight of women in the first century was not a very good one. And yet the gospel, the intent of the gospel was to elevate the role of women in the eyes of mankind. And it did. But look at Jesus. Here He is spending time with this lady who's a Samaritan. And look, she's been married five times. And the Bible says she's now living with a man. You mean to tell me that Jesus was interested in this woman? Yes, He was. In Luke 19, you remember Jesus was passing through the city of Jericho. A fellow by the name of Zacchaeus heard about Jesus coming, and because he was of small stature, climbed up into a sycamore tree to get a glimpse of the Son of God as he passed by. What was Zacchaeus' trade? Do you remember? He was a tax collector, wasn't he? Matter of fact, he said to the Lord, once the Lord became a guest in his home, he said, if I have extracted aught from any man. In other words, if I have extorted from others, I'll repay that fourfold. But Jesus said to Zacchaeus in the long ago, I'm going to be a guest in your home today. And Jesus said in verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was interested in lost people, wasn't He? And so here they are chiding the Lord and His disciples because of the company He's keeping. Well, the fact of the matter is Jesus spent a lot of time among people 
deemed unfit, unworthy, unclean by the Pharisees and the scribes. So we think about the criticism of the Pharisees. But I want you to think now about the clarification by the physician. That's Jesus, the great physician. And note, if you would, they've asked the question, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And here's what Jesus said. Those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, a couple of thoughts here. Let's just talk for a minute or two about the nature of their sickness. Well, whose sickness? Well, in this context, we'd be talking about the publicans and sinners. The nature of their sickness is summed up in one word. It's called sin, isn't it? I mean, really, that was the problem, wasn't it? So when we talk about sin, there are a couple of thoughts that we ought to consider in light of what Jesus is teaching here. Number one, sin is invasive, isn't it? Now, we're not born as sinners, are we? You know, there are some people that are born with certain physical and mental maladies. Well, we're not born as sinners. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel said in Ezekiel chapter 18, all souls are mine, speaking on behalf of God. And God said, the Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father. The Father shall not bear the iniquity of the Son. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him. In other words, we are all accountable for our own conduct, aren't we? That's what Ezekiel is teaching there. But sin is invasive. As we begin to grow older in life, what happens? We begin to make choices. Choices that are in conflict with the law of Almighty God. And John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, sin is the transgression of the law. So when we step across the law of God, what happens? We're identified as a sinner, aren't we? And didn't Paul say in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned. In Romans chapter 1, Paul delivered a death blow to the Gentile world. Why? Because he said, the Gentile world is under sin. I can just imagine the Jews. When they heard Paul say, the Gentile world is under sin, they would have stood back and said, you let them have it, Paul. You're exactly right. But then in Romans chapter 2, what did he do? He turned the gun on them. And he said, the Jewish world... He said, they too are under sin. In chapter 3, he said, there's none righteous, no, not one. And then he goes on to say in verse 23, listen to him, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin is invasive. And once sin 
becomes a part of our life. It's not just invasive, it is progressive. Now, you know, sometimes when we talk about disease or illness, disease can sometimes invade the human body. I think about, for example, a tumor. A tumor that is cancerous and left unchecked will progressively get worse and worse, will it not? I mean, can you imagine going to the doctor? And let's just say that you've been having some stomach pain. And so they begin to run a series of tests. And over the course of their testing, they determine, okay, you've got a cancerous growth in the lining of your stomach. And the doctor says, unless we remove this cancerous growth, it will continue to progress, it will be very aggressive, and it will ultimately kill you. That's what sin does, doesn't it? Do you remember Paul said, evil men, listen to him, grow worse and worse. Whenever individuals begin living a life of sin, sin always leads down. Sin is destructive. And listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Paul said, the wages of sin is death. If you have cancer in your body and you do not treat it, I promise you, if it is aggressive, it will take you out of here. And if you have sin in your life and it is not treated, it will destroy you. It will kill you. You'll die. It's called the second death. And it is far worse than physical death. You remember in Luke 15, Jesus, as I said a moment ago, delivered a series of parables so that He might talk about the value of one the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. When that younger son went to his father and asked for his inheritance early, the text tells us his father obliged him. And so he gathers all together and goes out into a far country. And the Bible says he wasted his substance with riotous profligate living. The bottom line is he wasted everything, didn't he? When that young fellow left home, I can just picture him wearing nice clothes, got a pocket full of money. He's headed out to the city, to the bright lights of the city. He's going to enjoy life. He's going to live it up. He gets out into the big city, and before long, what happens? Out of money. And the text tells us he's in poverty. He began to be in want. And Jesus said in his narration of that parable, and no man gave unto him. When you look at the life of this young fellow, 
What do you see? You see a progression that takes place, doesn't it? When you begin living a life of sin, it will progressively take you further and further away from Almighty God. How many people do you think in our world today wake up, let's just say they go to bed on Friday night, they wake up on Saturday, and they're a heroin addict. Is that how that happens? Not at all. A person does not become an addict overnight, do they? It is a progressive thing. When individuals become enslaved to alcohol and they become what we typically talk about as an alcoholic. Did that occur when they took the first drink? When they went out the first night or the first week or the first month? Absolutely not. How many people do you think are waking up as we speak and they are waking up in a drunken stupor? And some of those folks, they have literally thrown their lives away. They've thrown away good jobs. They've thrown away their material possessions. They've thrown away their family members. Why? Because of a love of alcohol. Same thing's true when it comes to chemical substances. I don't care if it's heroin or crack or any other type of chemical substance. Individuals literally throw everything away. But that occurred over time, didn't it? And so as time goes on, they become enslaved to that way of life. That is how sin operates. And we talk about the deeds of the devil. Do you know why Peter said, be sober, be vigilant? Your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion because the devil is intent on destroying the hearts and lives of people. And he doesn't care how he does it. So individuals in our world today, we talk about problems in our world. I can tell you what the problem is. It's called sin. And sin is invasive and it is progressive. If you want to know why our country is upside down and we have all kinds of immorality and other problems in this world, it's called sin. That's it. It's sin. And it's from the White House on down. I don't care who it is. Sin is a reality in this world. And I'm here to tell you, it will destroy us. Individually, collectively, nationally. That's what sin does. So we talk about the danger of sin. And the nature of their sickness. We're talking about Sinful people in the home of Matthew. So what was their need? What did they need? Listen to Jesus. Here's what Jesus said. Those who are well do not need a physician. Ah, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The hard truth is this. The scribes and the Pharisees, they did not think of themselves as needing a Savior. They didn't think they needed the Lord. And Jesus said, look, 
When people are sick, who do they call for? They call for a physician. So what was their need? They needed the great physician. And here's what we need to understand. Number one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great physician, He offers hope to sinful people. Let's just think for a minute or two. We go to our family doctor this week. Let me, let me just give you a real life scenario. A friend of mine back maybe four years ago was visiting family and he was out of town and he had a stroke. And so in the hospital, they began to run a series of tests. And when the test came back, the doctor said, I don't see anything else from our test. Dismissed him from the hospital, but they sent those records to his primary physician. When his physician looked at those records, she said, there's something that I see here that I just don't like. And so she began doing some tests. And as a result of her test, she said, you have cancer. That cancer had already migrated in his body. It had metastasized. Three different places. So they did some radiation. They began to use some other methods to try to somehow corral this cancer in his body. And there was some hope there. So you just think about going to the doctor and the doctor says, you know what, you've got, you've got a cancer. You've got some type of disease. But I believe that we can Get this cancer, this disease under control, and you'll be okay. Well, you know, there are people in our world today who are living in sin, and they don't think they have any hope. They don't think that there is a better way. They don't think that there's anybody that would care enough about them to reach out and change their course of conduct. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 talks about those who are without hope. You talk about a bleak scenario in life to be without hope. Jesus as the great physician not only offers hope, but He offers help, doesn't He? You know, listen to what Jesus said, John chapter 10, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. He would say, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Look at the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul said he had been a blasphemer, a persecutor. He had been injurious to the cause of Jesus Christ. He said, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. But then he said, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant 
with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul said, of whom I'm chief. Paul, are you saying that through Jesus you had hope? Yes. Are you saying that through Jesus you had help with the problem identified as sin? And the answer is yes. When Ananias came to Saul and said, Brother Saul, what are you waiting on? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. That was the remedy for a sin-sick person. Same remedy applicable today, isn't it? People who are sick, they need a doctor, don't they? Now imagine going to the doctor. And we see it all the time, don't we? Imagine going to the doctor this week and the doctor saying, you know what, you need to lose some weight. And not only do you need to lose some weight, you need to begin exercising and eating the right kind of foods. Because if you don't do it, listen, my friend, you're going to die. Now, there are a lot of folks that walk out of the doctor's office and say, you know, what did, what, what, I mean, what does he really know? There are a lot of folks, they're told exactly what they need to do to live, and yet they ignore what their doctor says. Let me tell you what, that is foolish, isn't it? Can you imagine going to the doctor and the doctor saying, you know what, you've got a tumor in your stomach, and unless that tumor is removed, you're going to die? And you say, you know what, what does he know? Let me tell you what, you'll be dead before long. If you don't get treatment for your sin, you will die in your sins. And Jesus said, if you die in your sins, where I am, there you cannot come. You can't afford to die in sin. None of us can. So Jesus is the great physician. And the Lord Jesus is the one who offers us hope and help. Hope came to the home of Matthew. Help came to the home of Matthew. And let me tell you what, that same hope, that same help can come to your home today. Question is, are you going to do something about it? I have every reason to believe if the doctor were to tell you this week you have a tumor and unless that tumor is taken out, you will die, you would do whatever was necessary to save your life. But some of the very same people are sick with sin and won't do anything. Let me tell you what, you're going to die. You'll die in your sins. And Jesus said, if you die in your sins where I am, there you cannot come. You better think about that. You better understand the great physician. Today, the great physician saves. Tomorrow, the great physician may be your judge. He's going to judge you. If you step out into eternity without Him, let me tell you what, you're going to stand before Him one day and you're going to give an account of the deeds done in the body according to what you've done, listen to Him, whether good or bad. Have you obeyed the gospel? 
If you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God, repented of your sins, confessed His name before others, and been immersed in water, you're lost. On Pentecost Day, to those people who had crucified and slain the Son of God, Peter said you need to repent and you need to be baptized so that your sins can be washed away. Acts 2.38, Acts 22.16. God will then put you in the church. And if you're faithful till death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here today and you've gone back into the world, well, you need to acknowledge that to God. John said if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It might be that you need the prayers of the church. We'd be happy to pray with you and for you today. God will abundantly pardon. Won't you come as we stand and sing?